0: Welcome back to 50 States of Mind. A lot has changed in the world since our last episode. Things have gotten even more dire within our democracy. So it seemed like a great opportunity to dive back in, have difficult conversations, re-examine our preconceived notions, and be self-critical to try to understand what is really going on on the ground through stories from all 50 states. I'm Ryan Bernstein and welcome back of 50 states of mind okay we've got another great episode of 50 states of mind coming and we've got our first repeat guest which uh is a lot of pressure we're going to take that pressure off we're just welcome back our friend from the uk uh remind us of your name and tell me where you are right now
1: I'm Johan Mark-Jones, a writer based in London, in South London at the minute, in a flat in Brixton, and I know Ryan through our travels in Oxford and so on.
0: Were they, were they travels, really? Yeah, I wish I didn't say that. I'm already embarrassed. <laughs> I mean, we were like in between a two-kilometer area most of the time. Yeah, you know, Our travels from pub to pub in Oxford. Yeah. So... Yo, what do you remember about our last podcast? Is it so far in the past that you don't really remember any details or
1: I think you don't remember a lot because I've actually done two already because I did one with Mako and Maria.
0: This is your second solo venture.
1: Yeah. Well, I remember I remember talking a little bit about America. We talked about your travels in America. And my experience of America, we talked about politics, which is probably something I know a bit more about than the sort of cultural elements of American life, uncovered my perception of America, and against your probably slightly romanticized understanding of it.
0: Uh, Just attack you immediately. No, no, no. At the time, romanticized understanding of America. A lot has changed, which brings me to the reason you're here. I think uh, it'll be interesting to examine what we said back then, your cynical view then, and my romanticized view. Then and your very cynical view now, and my slightly more cynical view now. So, uh, my first question for you is between 2019 and now, from a British perspective, how has uh, America, American politics, American democracy changed?
1: I mean, one of the most interesting things is the fact that we don't have to constantly hear about you as much, which is really lovely. I mean, the BBC News was traditionally just covered with American politics because Trump had tweeted something or he'd attacked some minority or, you know, just said some random nonsense. And then that would be front page BBC News. It would be on The Guardian. It would be on The Independent. It'd be on The Times. Across the political spectrum, we would hear about American life. And it's just frustrating because we're not American and we live under this sort of banner of um, your influence, I think. And I think with Trump, that influence was, it was hard power and the exercising of hard power. And America's been exercising hard power for a long time, but I just don't think it's ever been confronted with the the fact of that. It's kind of to sort of disguised that hard power and the exercising of it. So it was nice <laughs> seeing the transition to Joe Biden on the simple terms that we didn't have these constant annoyances of hearing about what Trump's up to now or what what he's done now. But at the same time, there was a degree of hope, and I think we all breathed a sigh of relief with Biden. I don't think, we, I, don't think I was ever in any way optimistic about systemic change that, that really would you know, change America for the better and unfortunately, consequently, change Britain and the rest of the EU and the rest of the world for the better. I think the change so far seems to be minimal. Um, it's still I still and obviously grateful for some of it, particularly the rhetoric and the change in in that sort of cultural sway and the, and the change in the attitude of the hard power and it's the way it's exercised. But I still haven't seen a lot of change in terms of I mean re- redistribution of wealth, the way they tackle poverty, and all the things that seem completely important in this context. And also the things that I think gave rise to Trump in the first place, or at least informed a lot of the the sort of decision making, or allowed people to sort of make those decisions. So yeah, I don't think I'm particularly impressed. I think too many people easy I, don't th- I think too many people are easily impressed by American politics. And I think if you understand the history of American politics, I mean, you have, I think, Bobby Kennedy in the background of your thing. I mean, even JFK was a huge disappointment to me in high school, when I read about him being a sort of liberator, but they, it was always, it always seems so minimal. And I just never get excited about it, because I can't. Sorry, was
0: that... A lot. No, I mean, I've I've so many questions to unpack. Well, the first thing is, I thought you were saying we hear about you less, so that's good. I thought you were talking about me personally, and I was like, (laughs) that uh, is also a benefit. Yeah, that's that's what I that's what I thought. Um, Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, So, where do I even want to start? Okay, so you said JFK is a huge disappointment. (laughs) Who is someone who's not a disappointment, someone that's actually been in power, someone you look at and you say, wow, that person really fulfilled my hopes and ambitions for them? I
1: don't I don't think any American president, I don't think any prime ministers, probably Harold Wilson in the UK and even Harold Wilson obviously did some things that weren't brilliant. I think in terms of American politics, I think Obama is probably the best of a truly awful bunch. Um, Lyndon Johnson, I think, gets a harder rap than he possibly needed. Um, civil rights, I think he was quite strong. JFK, I think, was killed and people romanticised him. Um, but, for example, I, th- I don't think he did enough, particularly in terms... And I think if you look at his economic record, where he actually decreased taxation for the richest, talked about... I mean, he talked a lot about free market economics that we see today, the sort of trickle-down effect. The rising um, tide lifts all boats, I think, is direct lifted from JFK. Um, if I'm not wrong, I might be wrong there, so don't quote me. But all these things, for example, that that's where I, I think in many ways you have these disappointments from people on specific grounds so Obama for example is really disappointing to me in terms of um, uh, foreign policy the essentially a hawkish approach wrapped up in dove clothing where he was you know bombing across the world essentially very covert not talked about and you had this dual effect within the American media where you'd watch someone like John Stewart although John Stewart was the best again of a of a pretty terrible media but a lot of the liberal media, I don't know these acts, they seem to sort of deny that Obama was doing all these things, particularly in terms of foreign policy. And the right, they didn't want to talk about Obama being particularly aggressive because obviously the right wing quite like that. So, but Obama disappointed me in foreign policy and economics. I don't think he was redistributive enough in terms of he followed the financial crash. That was a peak opportunity to capitalise on that and sort of undermine or sort of dismantle the structures of state that have led to that crisis. But he didn't really take that opportunity. But there were some ways that I thought he was positive, particularly in his approach to liberal uh, politics and liberal issues that sort of dominate the American spectrum. I don't know if I've ever liked an American... I mean, uh, Roosevelt, I suppose, is the economics that I would have liked, the New Deal. Um, And I think we talk a lot about that now with the Green New Deal and so on and so forth. I still haven't seen that that sort of ambitious, redistributive economic policy realised in any serious sense in American politics. And I think that's where that's what I'm after because I think other issues, obviously a profound believer in intersectionality, but I think class kind of, and and the economy stands right in the center of that. And all the issues that I care most about are always so strong in American politics. But I think if you can just, the economy will drive that and redistributive policies will be the one thing that really overhauls the way that American life is, is currently running. If you know.
0: Okay. So, so uh, no so one sort of a two, a two part question for you. So, what does redistribution look like to you and is there an example of it in you know British excuse me yeah. uh, is there an example of it in British policy or European policy that you can point to
1: yeah I, I think there's always flaws um in 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 any economic system and and the obvious uh example I mean you did have redistribution of wealth in America I think that's what led to your your sort of famous middle class i mean the middle class the american dream obviously a lot of people were left out of that dream but nonetheless there was a success in the sense that the state was very much involved you know it was i mean nixon even at the end of that dream was talking about sort of everyone being keynesians now because the state had to be involved in order to give people a decent standard of living and that that died with reagan i think it's been continuing slowly dying further and further and further i mean thatcher for example had economic policies far to the left of our current government, in, in many forms, at least. I think redistribution looks a little bit, it is tax and spend, and it's tax and spend on, and, and particularly taxing billionaires now. I mean, they, they, they talk a little bit about increasing taxes for, for example, millionaires or people who earn quite a bit of money. But the real, the real wealth is concentrated in a few hands who typically don't pay tax at all, or certainly not near the rate they should be paying. So it's about that and using that to fund education, healthcare, welfare programs that go to the poor. That's what they did, particularly in uh, the UK post-war consensus, I suppose it was called, before the sort of um, Washington consensus overtook that. And we we created uh, nationalized industries on a small scale. So it was industries not prone to monopolization or oligopolization. Um, and they were basically usually just the, the sort of um, utilities, industries, water and all these things that basically should be owned by the state because it just makes logical sense. Um, and there was democratic control, though not enough. I think that's another thing that all sort of redistributive policy should have now is if you do nationalize or take into the state control, it should be democratized as well, which is a failure of that that redistributive system in the post-war consensus. Um, and then there's other things that I think weren't included then that they can bring in now. I think universal basic income looks obviously really um, important and I think is something that will I mean, I think they trialled it out in the UK today. They've already trialled it in Wales and Scotland. It's been successful uh, to a degree, and it'll be it'll look like it'll look different, and there'll be different forms. But I suppose the ambition, I think, is is another point that I just want to mention now because I don't see the ambition in American politics beyond rhetoric, and the rhetoric is so aspirational. And yet I do not see that married in policy. I think it's the opposite is true in some sense in the UK, where we actually try and calm ourselves down, particularly the left. The left are always talking about how they're not gonna do this and they're not gonna do that. But when you get in power, you know, you hope that they actually take it a bit further and realize their ambitions. We had a Labour leader, Ed Miliband, who I actually quite liked. He he failed miserably. <laughs> but I quite liked him because I felt that he was saying these very sensible things, but his his history had been quite left wing. His voting history had been quite left wing. And I think he was almost, you know, saying, no, I'm a, sev- a steady pair of hands. But when he gets in, he could have more ambitions than he perhaps realised. And I think that's the other thing about redistribution. It, we have these historical precedences. They are worth learning from. But the future is different. The green the green is going to dominate our future. And it's about using those historical precedences and the new information we have and redistributing wealth and ki- keeping that redistribution at the focus of the policies that dictate the future. And I, I think that's how progress is made, really.
0: What would you think about a policy like the child tax credit that was unveiled back in 2021? It gave $2,000 uh, per child or $3,000 per child for uh, kids over the age of six um, to American families with children. That's, that's cash in their pocket. Would you consider that uh, a good start for America, something that um, you think is transformative or... I mean, it
1: it seems a bit, I mean, it seems a bit arbitrary firstly. And there's a thing with redistributive policies where, where I think there's this debate on the side of one is it should be blanket and universal when everyone should receive it. That's the argument behind universal basic income. So that would be everyone should receive that amount of money. And then the, the I think it basically lessens complaints from people but, and and the, the idea of redistribution is easier to swallow, I think. Um, and that I think that has its place. But with stuff like tax credits for everyone, it does mean that you could actually just give it to the poorer, which would actually be more redistributive, because giving wealthy families £1,000 per child or $2,000 sorry per child uh, doesn't seem particularly fair in that, in that instance. Uh, we had a similar thing, which I could compare in tax credits in the UK, which the Conservatives got rid of recently. And it was the Labour government under Tony Blair was saying it was the most redistributive policy that we'd seen in years. And the idea was that you basically um, anyone under minimum wage would be basically that their, their, their paycheck would be bolstered so that they would uh, meet this standard that the government said was fair and it was living wage and so on and so forth. The problem was that the ta- the people getting taxed in this country weren't billionaires. They weren't the ultra rich. It was usually affluent people and the upper middle class or you'd say even the upper class, but they weren't the elite. They weren't the top 1% because those people were still avoiding tax and still managing to get away with it. And I think it creates, that's the problem. When you have these redistributive policies off the back of the the middle class and the affluent class or of the upper middle class that you're still not really redistributing in the right way. And it's going to create resentment because people who are middle class aren't really looking to pay more tax. And in many ways, that's fair because, you know, I don't want to tax the middle class through the roof so they can pay for the working class. I'd rather tax the people who have excessive amounts of money to pay for that. So while the redistribution programs in in that sense are successful, and I think they have the the ability, we still need to tax the right people and take money from billionaires. And, you know, Jeff Bezos in 10 years will likely be a trillionaire, and then we'll be debating whether trillionaires are ethical, um, at the same time as watching Amazon pay 0% tax while using roads and lighting and everything that taxpaying money goes towards. So all these things, until you tax the right people, until you redistribute money from the right people, it's still going to be lacking, in my opinion, and it could it runs the risk of creating resentment among
0: many other problems. So why do you why do you think American leaders who are very good at talking about all these things that you're mentioning during mm-hmm. elections don't come in and make redistribution a first priority?
1: I mean, it's interesting with Biden because I think rhetorically, I think he's probably the most progressive I've ever seen, and that's in my opinion, reaching for the times. And he's done what a lot of presidents still somehow haven't done. Um, I'm talking Clinton and Obama, really, because I don't think the right are going to do that to the same degree, at least. But he's done what I think where he's talked. I mean, he's talk, his talk is really radical. I mean, he talks about transformation and he talks about um, more than just reform. And it's quite interesting to watch because you go, OK, but you, I don't believe him. Um, And I don't think he's going to do it. And I think, again, it comes back to campaign finance reform. I mean, lobbyism, all the things, the basic problems within American democracy, which have been going on for years. I mean, decades, quite literally, since probably the beginning of American democracy. I, I don't know enough to suggest that, but certainly since I've been following it and certainly since the history books or modern history books, since JFK and so on, where you did have people who are pulling direct democracy in the wrong way. And there's always been different actors on that stage. It went from just businesses and it went from maybe small business representation, representation, union representation, which is obviously can be a positive thing unless done in the wrong way, which it sometimes was in American history. But then now you're looking at lobbyism, you're looking at corporations having undue influence on politics. But you also look at lobbies, for example, in the COP, there was 500 plus lobbyists from um, oil companies. And you sort of go, that's that's absurd. And, and and sometimes it just feels that it's a clash of what people want and what the lobbyists and the people with a lot of power in the economy want, and that the government is somehow a uh, uh, sort of conduit between the two, trying to make both sides happy. And I think that's what's the fundamental problem and why no real transformative politics policies happen in the US, but also in the UK and, and other com- countries that are susceptible to that. It's primarily because they are looking after two separate, uh, more than two separate people when really they should be purely representing the people. I mean, I find the the environmental cause absolutely absurd. I have no idea why those people are invited or why they're even allowed, why security hasn't stopped people from BP and Shell. People who have destroyed the environment for 50 more years are invited to give talks or to listen to talks or to shake hands with Joe Biden or Boris Johnson. It, It strikes me as absurd. But those people are in those arenas and they always, they have been for a long, long time. And until they're kicked out of those arenas, I don't think you're going to make transformative
0: change because they like things just the way they are. Okay. How far to the left of the United States do you think Britain is? And do you think there's sort of a more of a consensus in British society about what the role of the government is, what the role of the private sector is? Mm. I
1: think so. I I think I think in terms of the first question. I think we are. I think we're to the left. Obviously, it depends on policies. I mean, I think last time we spoke about uh, various conversations you were having during Trump that we just weren't having. Um, It was interesting because things have actually changed quite substantially since then. But what I mean is uh, the abortion debate. We don't have that debate. That debate's been settled. Uh, The gay Mm -hmm. rights debate. I think it's actually been settled more or less a bit further on your side. Obviously, it's not settled. These are fights that continue. But in the UK, at least legislatively, it's been more or less agreed upon and that will not change or I can't imagine a future where that does change. So the, on those issues, we are to the left, or I suppose you would say left, but we're just more liberal and we've kind of settled them and we get, we move, you know, again, they haven't been settled on the streets. They have been settled in the Houses of parliaments, if you know what I mean by that. Um, the transgender debate is interesting because now we're having that debate very, very seriously. And I think you're almost further along with that debate until Trump came along and completely shattered it. Um, so I, I, I think that comparison is interesting. And in terms of economics, we are to the left of you. We have less influence in our politics. We have more robust um, count, uh, anti-corruption methods, if you want to call it that. Because I think, you know, one thing I've always thought is if people gave money to uh, leaders of you know, uh, Venezuela, in the way that they did in the UK, um, that would be corruption. I think if they did it the way they did in the US, it would be you know, I mean, it's conspiracy. It's it's certainly corruption. It's far more than that. It's millions of pounds to have directly influence policy decisions, which happens in the UK, but we're a lot more covert about it. I mean, it it, it takes an investigation from journalism, whereas in the US, it's done in broad daylight. I find. Um, so I think yeah, we're more to the left economically as well. I mean just just broadly we have more faith in our government i think we still believe that they'll they'll do a good job in education and i don't often come across uk people who they'll say they're a bunch of crooks or something like that for british people when they talk about the government people who generally are very very like untrusting of the powers that be as it were they'll rarely rarely feel the way i've i've heard americans americans that i met at oxford for example who would say i don't trust our government at all we actually need to abolish the entire structures of government and you thought you would not hear that often in the UK, an anarchist or a or very far right, sort of not far right, but far libertarian perspective where, you know, which, are of course, marriage, marrying in so many ways. But, yeah, that's that's a strange phenomenon that exists only in American politics. And I think it's been done through, you know, purposeful degradation on the, the mainstream right. I mean, they are constantly parroting, parroting in American um, politics. I mean, Reagan goes back to Reagan, obviously, with um, the government is the problem. Whereas in the UK, you know, the conservatives in this country, the right in this country are very much about traditions of state and and sort of the structures that uphold the, the sort of um, the nature of society. That Thatcher had a similar thing with with uh, Reagan, obviously, with there is no alternative. Tina, which was uh, sorry, not there is no alternative. She said there is no such thing as society, which is very Reagan night in that way. But she still believed in the structures of parliament. And and I think while Reagan obviously did, he did like do a lot to sow contempt for government. And I think that continues in a way that I don't see here. So, yeah, I don't think we, we have that same. I think we believe the government can be a force for good, whereas I think a, a quite a probably not a small percentage of Americans actually think that government in any form, whether the form they like or not, is just necessarily a force of evil. I don't know if you agree with that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I actually completely agree with that. And I think we're at this moment where America is questioning all of its institutions. Uh, mm-hmm. That means our universities. It means our corporations. It means our hospitals, our doctors, our teachers. Um, and so I wonder what you think the fate of American democracy is going to be in the next few years as we question government democracy as an institution. Mm-hmm.
1: I think my my concern is, I mean, I wonder how pressing that is. And I, I don't know, this might be a, a conversation, but I don't think really that American democracy is going to fold in any serious sense, because I think it's exactly like it has been for the last 30 odd years in the sense that you've had lobbyism. The only difference was Trump. You know, other than Trump, I mean, don't don't get me wrong, there's massive differences between Bush and Clinton. However, the, the economic standing remains broadly the same or at least doesn't deviate too much. The Overton window, the sort of plausible acceptable policies has remained more or less the same or sort of shifted slightly either way, but but hasn't veered massively from the centre. Uh, your foreign policy has always been pretty hawkish um, and, and remains so. So I don't see it shattering, even with Trump. The, the problem is uh, my big concern wouldn't be so much... And I I think he does undermine American democracy. But I think the biggest concern I would have is that Biden leads to another Trump or a worse Trump. You know, a Trump who, I mean, it it seems implausible, but who doesn't even try to hide anything in the way that Trump slyly, slyly did. I mean, I don't think Trump would, you know, come out and say he's racist, but I think he obviously gave loads of examples to counter that. But what follows Trump could be a lot more dangerous. And it's hard to think, it's hard to imagine. But Trump was hard to imagine, and I think if Biden doesn't do anything to give empower people in American democracy, make them feel like they're counted and and undermine the structures that are undermining American democracy, the lobbyism the the lack of 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 organizational representation at a local level, where people or at a working level i mean in 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 big corporations, you could have representation where people are democratically sort of democratically represented, and unless you have this this sense of empowering on the level. It's not that American democracy is going to crumble by a revolution. It's going to crumble because someone's going to get voted in democratically or as far as your democracy allows. And that's going to, that person is going to destroy everything that is left of America, I think. God, that sounded really hyperbolic. But what I mean is that this, it'll be a Trump, but but a worse, an even worse version. And that's the scariest thing. And or, you know, I mean, even looking further into the future, if Trump is just, if that's your right wing now, that's a scary point. If your right wing is just people who are pretty overtly homophobic, racist, transphobic, and all the rest of it, and just have no shame about it. I mean, what what sense of democracy do you have? And also, I don't think that reflects the masses of people, the masses of working class people who are, haven't got that hatred in them, who don't, have any power, but aren't fairly represented. So yeah, I, I don't know if that, that makes any sense, but.
0: Well, well here's the thing, it's like, <clears throat> it's a crazy thing to say, but I feel like the conversation has even shifted from the racism, the homophobia, the sexism, the transphobia, to being fundamentally anti-democratic. Mm. Passing laws in these states that allow the state legislatures to overturn the will of the people, putting people in place to count votes, decide whose vote gets counted, whose gets thrown out. I mean, all of those things almost feel small compared to the greater danger to democracy that the will of the people no longer counts. I mean, we had Trump endorsing, uh, is, is, is it Orban, or Orban, yeah, Orban? The Hungarian, yeah. How, how do you say it? Is it Orban? Uh, no, I, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Prime Minister of Hungary, Orban, who's basically come in and turned it into a illiberal democracy, mm. uh, reset the rules to keep his party in power. Um, you know, 49 percent of the vote for the opposing party yields, yeah. you know, 33 percent representation. I mean, mm. I think that's sort of the worry now, because it feels like there are all these individual, um, all these individual interests that right. Trump went after, but he also created this force of people that is just against everyone on the left, everyone who doesn't agree with them. So I, I guess the question is: Is there a sense in other countries that we're in danger, not from you know? problematic hateful views but from breaking the the wheels of the democracy that that we've built it has been the model to the rest of the world firstly i don't think it's been the model to the rest of the world <laughs> like um well i mean but, i mean it, at the very beginning like it was the impetus for the democracy you enjoy was i it mean not?
1: firstly thank you um but <laughs> no um i think i i know i know what you're saying but i don't think in my lifetime it's been uh A leader of democracy but nonetheless let's continue with the question because i i think in a weird way it is leading because (laughs) i think other countries are suffering a similar plight i mean other countries are seeing a similar anti-democratic sway but again you have to switch that anti-democratic nature of what you could say is sort of very procedural anti-democratic measures which trump has sort of tried to get through and have continued post-trump i think and then the sort of the, the stuff that was always there and the stuff that was ultimately in the background working away and undermining democracy with, from within. So I think both are important. But yeah, I mean, the second one, I mean, we see it we we see it in in quite vivid imagery, I suppose, and, and the way that it's been done. It, it doesn't make me lose faith in American democracy because I just didn't really have that much faith to begin with, I suppose. Sorry, that's not a brilliant <laughs> answer. Um, no, that's
0: fair. I mean, it's, I guess... I, I guess here's sort of the the issue now, and it's and I think it kind of reflects the cynicism that a lot of people have started to adopt. It's it's that, you know, often American democracy worked and yielded outcomes that I didn't agree with or particularly yeah. like, but at least it worked. Mm-hmm. Uh and now it feels like American democracy could not work or be undermined and then yield results I also don't like. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's sort of that cynicism. Does it even matter? Yeah, I mean, that's that's
1: an interesting. I mean, you've always got that idea of a better a benevolent, um, a better a evil Democrat than a benevolent, benevolent dictator. Right. And I think I think the problem is when you've had democracy, a democracy that's been quite undermined in the UK, we're the same. I mean, we still have a royal family. We still have campaign finance. We still have a media that's broadly of the main circulation supports the Conservatives and always will. The Sun has told us who to vote for for the last 50 years, the main uh, sort of right-wing paper in circulation over that period. Uh, It's absurd, sometimes the problems with our democracy. But at the same time, I think the belief in it still remains. I think the problem lies in the fact that people are getting tired. And I think if, if... if you've had this belief in a system that has yielded no positive results for 50 years, which is the experience of a lot of people, particularly working class people who have had very little power in our democracy, in in, in the UK particularly, some of them have voted for the other party and never had that vote realised. I mean, Scotland have voted... For the SNP, for, for years and years and years, but the Conservatives have always broadly run their country, apart from the devolved as, aspects, you know. So all these people are, are living under a democracy, but not reaping any benefits from it. It does raise questions about the democracy, of course, it does. I think people still broadly agree it's the best method, you know. But at the same time, I guess there also comes a question about the what the world we live in now, where you, could, I mean, forty years ago, of course, you had to correct, collect papers and everything was done with that. I can do whatever I want with my phone. And yet, I can't have my voice heard on specific policy issues. I mean, I think uh, Switzerland has the quite a, a referendum-heavy; they have constant referendums. Mm-hmm. But there is questions about, you know, they're seen as ut- utopian. But you could have direct democracy where people actually vote on what they want to see happen. That's not far away, and it shouldn't be far away. But the recent powers that be don't seem to want to. And of course, there comes myriad problems with this. I'm simplifying massively just for the sake of argument. But you could have that within let's say a year, where everyone basically votes on every single policy decision and we don't really have a place for for parliament because everything could be debated. I mean, that would be the place, there'd be a place of debate and we'd have our people elected who would debate on, on for our side, but then we could all just vote on our phones if you wanted direct democracy. Again, huge problems with that, but nonetheless, it's a plausible thing that no one really talks about because people do not want to give you direct, dem- direct democracy. And I think there's a clash there where people want their thoughts and their feelings realized the way they are in almost every other aspect of their lives. Because you have a lot more democratic control over every aspect of your life now. You can complain about people quite Quite openly, quite visibly. And you can highlight these problems. But yet in the democratic arena, you're not really able to do that. So I think, yeah, I think that's another little clash that's going to come forward is people are feeling a lack of power when they, they, I I guess they don't really understand why they don't have a voice. And I, I, I think I broadly agree with that. I don't see why I don't have more democratic power and why that constantly seems to be getting taken away from me. I mean, a good example, I've never voted for anyone who's ever won anything um, in the UK. <laughs> Even the, the one time I think I was able to vote with Labour, which is the left-wing party, I voted for uh, the non-left-wing party, which, well, I, actually, no, I voted for Greens, I think. So I have, I've never, I, I'm not proud of it, but I've never won a vote. So, it, it, and it does feel frustrating, because on, on that sense, you, you don't seem to be on any issue. You know, there's nothing that I've ever voted for, and on a an issue by issue basis, the only one I've ever actually voted for is the EU, and I lost that vote. So it's odd, it's strange to have this much power, personal power, at the tip of my fingers, and yet in a democratic arena have nothing. So I, I can I can see. I, I don't believe anyone should lose faith with democracy. I think is the you know the greatest principle, political principle we have, but I, I can kind of sympathise to see why all these people who have who have been living in poverty or have been struggling for years, whose area has been completely disseminated by changes in the global economy, who have moved away from sort of fossil fuel-based stuff to, you know, to financialization, who have been completely taken from their communities and all these these myriad things has happened and they voted and voted and voted and never been heard and now they have this technology that allows them to be heard constantly. to And, you know, they, they tweet everyday pictures of their cats or Facebook everyday pictures saying they, you know, donated to charity or anything whatever they want to do. I don't know what people do on social media that much, but the simple fact is they can be heard. And yet in the democratic arena, we can't be heard at all. Um, it just, it does feel like that's got to be a clash at some point. I I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, I've actually never heard that articulated. The fact that we've had this sort of antiquated democratic structure for so long and we're so, uh, we revere it so much in America and yet we do have the technology now for direct democracy. So, so yeah. for example, seven in 10 voters uh, support some sort of public health insurance plan. I think 55% support Medicare for all, yeah. uh, the legalization of marijuana, overwhelmingly mm-hmm. people agree with it. But in the in the current structures, people have to pick a party mm-hmm. that they may not agree with on everything, but they have to pick the one that they think broadly represents their interests as mm. opposed to a referendum system where they can sort of pick and choose the things that are important to them yeah. and elect leaders to sort of handle the unforeseen things, the foreign mm-hmm. policy, the crises. But yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I, I can understand why people are frustrated in America because there are all these broad consensuses. Is it consensuses or consens- consensi? I think I it? think either way. That's just there, there, There is a broad consensus on so many issues, mm. but... Nothing's getting done about it. And I think uh, a lot of the people in power are trying to prevent us from realizing how much we agree on, which is really the sort of romantic notion I had two or three years ago that I still have, yeah. that we agree on more than we think we do. But oh, totally. in, in some ways, democracy is getting in the way of that, um, the way mm-hmm. our structures are are built. And there's all this talk about protecting democracy. We have to protect democracy. But actually, in some ways, maybe we should modernize and change it. So uh, that's actually the first time I've ever heard that articulated. Yeah. Um, I mean,
1: there's a good example I saw, which is that there's 11 bars in the um, Westminster. And when you go past London, you go to Westminster, you see the Big Ben. In that building, House the Parliament, there's 11 bars. And I didn't realize this until recently, but um, our MPs, because of traditions, can essentially still vote while intoxicated. So they can go <laughs> for lunch, drink a, two glasses of wine, maybe share a bottle and then go vote to a bomb Syria. And I read that the other day and I was like, in what world have we been allowing that to happen? It's absolutely balmy, but this, these, these things happen and it just doesn't make any sense. And it, it's particularly great when you're on the left because you have all these polls that you, you, you see where people believe in small scale nationalization, they believe in higher taxes, they believe in really taxing billionaires and redistributing wealth towards the poor and healthcare and education. They believe in all these things and they just don't happen. And it's not that they don't happen on the right because you don't expect that. But the left doesn't even offer them. So you wonder what something's fundamentally... Well, I mean, Corbyn did, but he was a pariah, that outlier. No one really offers them. The Greens do, but they don't get voted in. You know, So you do wonder why that happens and why the, the things that people want, no party offers. And that just seems balmy. It just doesn't seem to add up. But I think when you start to unpack the nature of the democratic system, i.e. a media that is completely hostile to any of those policies, largely because they are part of conglomerate corporations or you know uh, lobbyists in the you know bp for for example who are completely against any of the sort of uh, environmental measures that people broadly support you know when you start to unpack it it does all make sense and it's, it's it paints a pretty grim picture and if if trust in democracy goes down it's not because people don't believe in democracy they don't believe in the form of democracy
0: we currently have a sort of bought democracy yeah
1: I mean, but that's yeah. the other thing. I do wonder, you know, an app on my phone where I can vote. I'm not even saying they had to do whatever we say because that could cause problems. But you could have the a sort of broad app that everyone has to use or could you could make it mandatory or maybe that's a bit problematic. But it's just just when you boil it down to think about the way we do things in real life now, you know, the way I work, for example, on all these collaborative apps, I barely ever go. In, you, I mean, I don't go into the office at the minute. I do everything 100% streamlined for eight hours a day, all on digital. And yet, in our democracy, it's still people wearing suits, people casting ballots, a man in a crown coming in and banging a door with a bow, of, of cast, or I don't even know what it's called. It's a big stick, a gold stick or whatever. And you just go, this is silly. We could just have a lot more empowering direct de- direct democracy. People heard, and it would restore faith. But they don't. they don't want, I don't think the powers that be. And this sounds really conspiratorial, but I fundamentally believe that they don't agree with direct democracy because they think that most people are, are stupider. Um, the problem is with direct democracy, if you had that, you'd have to agree with everything. If people, for example, lent to the right or God forbid far right, that that is the nature of democracy. Still, you know, it's just more damaging because then you hear all your people in your country and they're, they're pretty harsh beliefs. I think the other thing with direct democracy is you have to control information a lot better. You know, that's the danger that in the current format where we have a media that is ruthlessly and relentlessly uh, pro-right wing in our country, I'm, I'm not so sure it's the same in America. Um, I, I know your your right and left is quite split um, in the sense of it's not really left wing in economics. Uh, it's more liberal versus conservative, right? But I think, you know, if you have a ruthlessly anti-left wing media, And then you have social media that has, you know, this reams and reams of misinformation about everything and anything. Then to have direct democracy with those structures of information, with the lack of regulation or independent regulation of that information, I think that's pretty worrying as well. So it's basically all bad.
0: (laughs) Sorry. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, thank God I have this podcast to, you know, make make change.
1: (laughs) Yeah, thank God I'm here to send give people real information. Right?
0: We're like a, a pebble in a pond sending ripples yeah. through uh, the structures of democracy. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to transition to talk about the, the state that uh, I brought you here to talk about today. What do you know about the state of Georgia?
1: Um, oh, I think I know the song Georgia on my mind, which is its most famous sort of cultural artifact. I think I know it's in the South, the Southeast, I think it's near sort of Tennessee. It's, it always reminded me of the when I wanted, we're, we're going to go on a uh, road trip and see a couple of friends. We might pop into you, actually, um, just as like a detour. But um, one, one of the things we wanted to do is do the sort of what we see as like, the I, I'm not saying they're solely musical, but those musical states where you sort of want to go through Georgia, um, sort of down through Tennessee and down to New Orleans. And so I think it's, we see it as like part of that trip um so it's got quite a good musical history i think i know it's like the capital is atlanta right atlanta georgia which i mean mm. i know from hip-hop was a really uh sort of a, a focal point of hip-hop it must have held the olympics some years ago because i know the olympics were in Atlanta. i think uh what else do i know i know georgia the song the ray charles song which was one of my favorite songs was also covered by Ludacris and sierra which was not also not bad it was probably pretty prominent in the civil war i'd assume um and then other than that i think i'm bottoming out is that enough trivia that seems like a lot of trivia for a state from someone from
0: london yeah no i i guess georgia looms large i need to i don't actually know any of those songs you mentioned except for georgia on my mind oh, i yeah. didn't know that well the only Ludacris other one was and... was basically a cover of that with Ludacris. Mm-hmm. wow I, I don't i, play, about I don't peg you for a while. massive
1: ludicrous fan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i'm i am a fan of the ludicrous like uh the absurd but uh not the oh, ludicrous, the okay that wasn't pretentious um, at all i know uh ludicrous <laughs> and chingy were they a duo at one point yeah let's move the conversation on from now oh, okay yeah let's get it back to Sarah <laughs> let's not go back I'm... to
1: chingy again it always ends up with chingy. <laughs> what ever happened to chingy i don't know actually i think he's, he's probably in georgia
0: <laughs> All right, look that up while I monologue about that. Um, yeah, so do you know anything about uh, voting rights? Georgia, does that ring any bells? Stacey Abrams? Oh, Brian yeah, I, do. I
1: I know that Stacey Abrams was pivotal in sort of spreading, I, I think, from what I know is spreading democracy and somehow basically improving dem- uh, voters' rights for, for marginalized communities. Is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah, bang on. And what do you know about what has happened uh, since the twenty? 20- 20 election where George, George Biden, Joe Biden, (laughs) Joe (laughs) Joe Biden won Georgia.
1: I vaguely remember, I think she, she, is she seeking to run for power other than that? I don't think, or, or some sort of Senator stuff.
0: Absolutely. She's running for governor, which she ran for in 2018. But basically the Republican party, uh, and the governor of Georgia, the current governor have passed restrictive voting laws, um, making it more difficult for folks to vote uh, mm. closes the window of early voting. It uh, you can't give someone a bottle of water in line. It cracks down on voter ID laws. Have you heard anything about these efforts? I
1: mean, I've seen the efforts on a on a broader national scale. I mean, it was a big part of the conversation pre-Trump. I think, and and Trump was complaining about a lot of it because it it did it favored democracy rather than him. I suppose. Um, and I suppose this is an extension of that and and they'd go. I mean, they've been doing this for years in, in various forms, right? They do it in the u k as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. um okay, let me just tell you what I did in Georgia. Let me just and see if there if there are any uh, thoughts uh, that are are sprung uh, by what I talk about in Georgia. So uh, I went three places in Georgia. I went to Atlanta, which you famously uh, mentioned. To the Olympics, uh, mm-hmm. spent some time there. Uh, didn't really have anything that interesting happen to me in Atlanta, except for it's a lovely city, uh, great vibes, great food. Uh, also, went to a town called Milledgeville, Georgia, mm-hmm. which uh, used to hold the state asylum. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like most of the economy of this town was the state asylum, which apparently Jimmy Carter, when he was governor, shut down. So I showed up and I'm so sad I don't have the recording because I drove around with this guy for like an hour. He was the (laughs) uh, city planner of the city and got in my car, drove me around, and he was like, you know, this city has been decimated by the fact that we lost this asylum. uh, Mm -hmm. And it's my job to make sure that this is a place that uh, my kids want to live and their kids want to live. So this man... uh, would every year dress up as the Tom Hanks character from the Polar Express and uh, ride around in a trolley and pick up all the kids. And uh, this is part of his revitalization efforts in the state Mm. of Georgia, in Milledgeville, uh, to get people to move back. Uh, Someone had recently opened up a taco shop, Uh, someone who had lived in Atlanta, had picked up, moved to Milledgeville, opened a taco shop. So this was sort of my first, you know, uh, drive around with someone in the state of Georgia. And I just wonder if that sparks anything in you, this man trying to help revitalize a, a city that's lost its asylum.
1: So why, why was the asylum so essential
0: for the, for the, was it essential for the economy? It was like most of the, it's like a big hospital closing in town. It was, it was the state run asylum and people, it was, it was huge. Like the, the campus is like a college campus full of like old now vine covered abandoned buildings. Um, and it was basically like a hospital system, uh, except for as a state asylum and then it closed.
1: But I, I don't understand why he was, I mean, I understand why you'd mourn it as a public good, but, but for the, community what, what was it doing
0: so it was called Central State Hospital and it was once the world's largest mental institution um, and it's now empty falling into decay it's you know 2,000 acres first of all the the main building looks like the White House it's got four big ionic columns and when they opened it in 1837 the Georgia lawmakers authorized it as a lunatic idiot and epileptic asylum it was the world's largest asylum. 2000 acres of just these old, beautiful buildings, stately buildings. But then in the 1970s, uh, it was closed by uh, Jimmy Carter and it sort of uh, decayed into ruins and they actually haven't done anything about it. So a decade before the national movement towards uh, deinstitutionalizing folks, um, Jimmy Carter began emptying the uh, central state Uh, asylum in earnest so all the idiots and lunatics were were moved elsewhere um but yeah it's just basically sitting empty it is a haunting experience there's a little museum but there's not much from it but there are photos if you want to go online look it up look up millageville like
1: yeah i'm still i was it so did it sort of was like an icon of the
0: of the town if you grew up during that time if your parents said millageville to you you would behave i mean it just the word loomed large in people's imagination did your parents ever say i'm going to send you to military school if you're not good or is that an american Uh, we didn't really have it oh yeah well that's that's what i i I heard a lot in military school could you imagine me in military school yeah i love it um (laughs) but uh (laughs) georgia novelist terry k recalls that as a boy in the 1940s it was one of the few words with great power millageville city of the crazies it was a word of fear and mystery part of the reason I wanted to talk about this state with you is to talk about the idea of institutions so mm-hmm. in 1999 uh, the US Supreme Court uh, allowed patients with mental health with mental health problems to choose community care over institutionalization mm-hmm. um, so there's a movement away from this idea. and it, it, no coincidence in the 70s we're gonna shut down these state-run institutions. In favor of private, uh, private care. So, uh, what would an institution like this look like, or what does an institution like this look like in the uh, UK? Because, again, as I said, it's no coincidence that as we started to transition away from mm-hmm. more private enterprise, away from government, that uh, institution like this was closed.
1: I mean, it does. It, there is a sadness to that, a real, a real sadness. I think. I think sometimes I remember being in Australia. And I was on a tram and it was, it's not funny because, you know, but at the time the guy kept saying the word fuckwit, he just kept calling. Can I say that right? Yeah. Uh, Anyway, um, he kept saying, he kept calling people fuckwits. You know, he had a a mental health problem. Um, and it was odd because they just didn't have... I don't think they had the state structures to, to support that or to help those people or do anything for those people. And you saw it a lot. It was in um, it was in Melbourne, where where I saw it particularly. And in the UK, you, you actually do see it more because, I mean, there's some pretty tragic stories that I don't really want to get into, but of people obviously facing a, a pretty horrific violence on the hands of people who should be institutionalised. But it's not about whether they should be institutionalised so much as whether the state has the ability to take care of people. And I think that's one thing mm. that has been lost over recent years is that some people really do need the people's taxes to pay for them to seek constant care, regardless of their age, but just because they don't have the mental capacity to support themselves, or that they are unfortunately a threat to people or, or could cause harm to other people, which is you know often through no fault of their own or or whatever, or they faced you know severe trauma in childhood and then they need just constant lifelong support, or whatever it is, or maybe they they can come out of institutions and 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 sort of have a, a normal life, but but potentially there's time for a temporary stay. And I think there is something there about like the fact of that we have lost sight of the fact that every person in our society should be cared for. And and I don't think I don't think I believe in that anymore in in terms of the way our government treats people and the way Americans and this move away from this sort of you know seen as like evil and sort of a oppressive state that in some ways in in many ways was just there to care for people particularly when families were stretched I mean if you had someone who was for example I don't want to talk too much about the medical side of things because my knowledge isn't brilliant there there's someone who was potentially harmful for no fault of their own because of a mental disorder you you feel so I think you feel so alone these days and you feel like you have to deal with it as a family and the problem with that is a lot of families can't manage and there's not there's no one to turn to often. I mean, on a smaller scale, scale, sorry, uh, mental health protection on the smaller sort of, more sort of uh, daily level, where that a lot of people experience has been eviscerated in this country, you know, and and people aren't receiving the care they need on a on a real basic level, and, and obviously can cause harm to themselves or others, and, and that's just because our state doesn't provide that as much anymore, and and you almost have to battle other people for it. And I think that's that's sad and it's I'd like to I think politics is driven by that need to think that everyone should be cared for and the people who need help and I'm not talking about just the people who are immediately affected but I'm talking about their family and friends and and their family and friends and this ripple effect of pain that can come from the lack of support and lack of um sort of ability to look after people. I don't think we can keep putting it on individuals. So and it's weird when I look at this picture now because I just googled it. It does sort of seem as a symbol of of a, a time past when actually, and look, I, I, I don't imagine these institutes were perfect in any way. I mean, in fact, I you know, you do hear a lot of horror stories, but in the 21st century, when we have these degrees of transparency and we can have independent regulation, organizations like this can take huge amounts of pressure off people and families who who otherwise can't afford to have that pressure and have to live with it. So it does sort of seem as a bit of a symbol of a lost time because it's just empty. And she said, it's only got a small museum now. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's huge. There's,
0: there's actually a, um, about uh, an hour from where I live in St. Joseph, Missouri, there's a uh, former asylum that is now a psychiatric museum. It's called the Glore Psychiatric Museum. And you walk through and you see all the pretty dark things that mm. happened there. And, uh, you know, I think in Milledgeville as well, I'm reading this article, there are, you know, lobotomies, mm. uh, children in metal cages, mm. adults taking cold showers and in straitjackets. It sounds horrific and there are examples of the state mismanaging things. Yeah. And I wonder if if part of it is, you know, the government doesn't do everything perfectly and when you find anecdotal evidence of that, people can use that to scare oh, you. Like, is, oh,
1: yeah, it's the most annoying. It's the most I mean, don't get me wrong. I I know that the history of asylums particularly and state state um coercion, obviously, but also like anyone in state institutions, period, really, have always faced, a, a, obviously, horrible things. But again, this this anecdote thing happens all the time. It particularly happens with COVID. You know, you hear it all the time. My friend's cousin actually had a, a fit. You know, that's the sort of thing I heard the other day. I heard someone tell me that exact story. And so he wouldn't get a vaccine. And you sort of go, your friend's cousin is one example among hundreds of thousands and and of course, these examples are, are sometimes now used to dictate policy. I mean, and you see it in other places. I think even with you know, sort of the transgender debate that's happening in in the UK, a lot of the sort of uh, anti-trans people they make their arguments based on these anecdotes or they post anecdotes. I think JK Rowling posted a story the other day, which was an anecdote about something that plausibly could happen uh, if a policy policy decision occurred, and it's it's sort of like this is an anecdote of what could happen, but it hadn't even happened. And even if it happened to be one example of a thing, it shouldn't tarnish an entire um, marginalized and in many ways oppressed community. And I think that that's the danger of using any story to, to license sort of policy decisions that policy decisions should be made based on facts and, and, and based on statistics. I know that sounds really boring and dull, but one story doesn't undermine a positive and progressive thing. There's always going to be downsides to policy. I mean, but like even you read books about this all the time free economics is a good example of a book that constantly has these sort of uh hidden uh sort of costs and hidden benefits from policies policy decisions i think the one that sticks with me is that the ceausescu the romanian dictator had tried to push in the same way that certain um, eastern european governments are doing now where they he pushed uh, people to have sex and have babies and it was the about 18 years after his policy came into force and he'd basically grown an army of counter-revolutionaries who overthrew him because it was the student movement that, that primarily pushed him, I believe. So there's always hidden costs and hidden benefits, but you definitely can't dictate policy based on, on stories that you hear and particularly scare stories which come with institutions. I don't think I'm an advocate for state institutionalisation on any grounds. I'm an advocate for the state being in some way a benefactor or some way uh, providing care for people who need it. I think if you were to take away from these scare stories, not scare stories, they are real stories, but if you are to take away from them a little bit, I think the point I would make is all the people who have to suffer uh, or the people who are suffering, the people who are in harm's way or ho- potentially harmful to themselves, all those people across the country who have been spread around or who, have been, who don't get any support or any help, there's hundreds, if not sorry, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of those people across America as there are in Britain probably more like thousands in Britain, but those people, those stories aren't heard of because they happen on a family basis. You know, like there there's stuff that people can't talk about and those people are crying for help and they're not getting it. But you have a, a sort of a dark story about an institution and that changes public consciousness more. Where well, I think that's why it's so essential that governments make decisions, particularly in terms of the way they use the state for good, with knowledge of 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 basically the the benefits that it could cause and, and try and mitigate against the risks, you know, which they can do these days with transparency I mean, I mean back then there wasn't the same transparency in any stretch of the imagination as there is today yeah and
0: i think uh to kind of bring this to a perfect close to earlier points like social media makes it so much easier to spread those scary stories yeah to spread that anecdotal evidence i have been having a lot of conversations about jk rowling recently obviously because of harry potter Hogwarts, mm. tournament of houses and you know like we support Jake? Like, is it supporting JK? Like what's the Mm -hmm. morality of that? And I just think it's such a tale of a boomer. She's Mm -hmm. not quite a boomer, but someone of that age, Mm -hmm. having their mind warped and poisoned by the internet. Yeah. Um, Getting anecdotal stories, anecdotal evidence, having algorithms see that that's something that you respond to and delivering more and more of that to your Mm -hmm. doorstep. And someone who's, you know, a billionaire removed from society lives in a castle You start to no longer actually deal with the world as it is. Mm. And you deal with the world as it's been portrayed to you by the algorithms that push your buttons. Mm. And I think that's one of the biggest dangers, uh, and you were talking about misinformation earlier, mm. of uh, social media. Is it, it, it creates the world you not want to see, but expect to see. It confirms yeah. your worldview every time you you know, log in or every time you engage with it. And I think that's, what's really dangerous about it is you can't understand other people's worldviews. Cause you know, you were talking about you do everything from home. You work eight hours a day digitally. Mm -hmm. I do the exact same thing and I love it. I love not having to venture out Mm -hmm. and put on, you know, regular pants, uh, (laughs) or shower some days, but there is sort of a, I'm trying to think what the word is like, there's a herd understanding of things when you get together. If someone's spouting insane theories and you're at a dinner table, someone's going to be like, no, 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 no. That's not true. Yeah. Like, There's going to be someone to hold you accountable. There's sort of a, a positive, whatever the positive version of groupthink. There's a group understanding that you get uh, when you're discussing things in person that as we get more and more isolated, we're getting served more and more warped views of the world. We yeah. live in. Does, does that feel true to you? Yeah, I think
1: there's bias confirmation confirmation bias through and through and i think there's algorithmic confirmation bias which is absurd um but i mean i i think it's not just misinformation but it's also i mean and that is a massive worry but it is with in the case of jk rowland which she doesn't realize the damage she's doing by reaffirming these these anecdotes to sort of justify what would follow which is causing serious and physical danger to transgender people but i think that's the other thing it's about proportion and, and having an understanding of what your the impact of your The way you spread information is these days. And that's not just for celebrities. I think it's for all of us. You know, if we, I think it's hard because you sort of say to yourself, I want to, you know, this is the entire problem, but I'm quite active on Twitter or used to be quite active on Twitter. And I knew that the things I said sometimes, the things that would do well and the things that were successful were perhaps more radical than my belief and certainly less nuanced. Mm. And it was odd because I could tell you the things that were most successful were always the ones that were narrow-minded in the sense that they didn't allow for an alternative opinion and truthfully quite aggressive towards, usually towards conservatives. And that was sometimes how I felt, you know, and it was an annoyance, but the problem was I'd sometimes tweet it. Then I would think I've got to delete this, but I'd be like, no, so six people have liked it now and that would grow. And I knew it would grow because you know, that in the first minute sort of thing. And I think, you know, like I know what exactly what it's like to be manipulated by that because I constantly was, and I still am to a certain degree, In the sense that if I tweet now, I think about what people will like, and it's always the more extreme things. So the algorithms certainly, they pose huge dangers to, to society, but I don't really understand. And this is the thing. I mean, we've all seen that documentary. I've read books about it. I still have no idea how you would actually counter any of that, other than increasing transparency. But I mean, how long have we known about this? And no one seems to have done much about it. Twitter seems to be the only one that at least tries um, I, I don't think Facebook even, I don't think any of them have ever thought about it more. I, they don't seem to do much at all um, in terms of on, on the day to day basis of misinformation and, and spreading that. In fact, I think they seem to profit from it quite a lot. Hearing about it and the way it is, I don't really feel very positive about the future considering how much of a time it consumes. I think one of the most progressive things people could do now is to delete their apps.
0: Yeah. Um it is one of the most progressive things you could do now, but we're in this bind where it's the only thing connecting us in yeah. so many ways because we're in a pandemic, but that's another thing we could um talk about for hours. I think I'm gonna wrap it up here. <laughs> is there anything else you wanna say about uh, you know, democracy, Georgia, asylums
1: nothing more i'd want to say it's all it's been a pleasure talking to you as ever and uh thanks for having me
0: oh what a treat what a treat round three round two and a half really yeah and we can't wait to have you on for round four cool maybe thanks very much thanks joey thanks for listening to this episode of 50 states of mind the best way you can help is to leave a five-star review on apple podcasts or just share with your friends we're really committed to telling the stories across america so if you know someone who would be good on the podcast send an email five zero states of mind usa at gmail.com or find us on instagram at five zero states of mind thanks for listening